Welcome to Spirits Podcast, a boozy dive into mythology, legends, and folklore. Every week we pour a drink and learn about a new story from around the world. I'm Julia, not Amanda. And I'm Eric, because Amanda is currently traveling and unable to do the intro this week. Huzzah! Uh, And this is episode 117, The Epic of Gilgamesh, part two. This episode is very, very good. It is the conclusion to the Gilgamesh story, and it is, I think, our first like full true two-parter. Is that right? We did the Norse mythology one, which I always yes. want to redo at some point. But uh, yes, it is our second two-parter, and it's been like two years since we did another one. So yeah. It is a blast. It was a lot of fun. It is a lot of fun. I think it really fulfills the um, premise of spirits that we started with, which is we get drunk and talk about death a lot. So pretty much, pretty much. Also, to be clear, Amanda is on the episode. I'm just doing the intro. Yes, that is true. Amanda is here. Wait for her. You'll hear her voice. Do you know who else we would love to talk about death and have some drinks with, Eric? That would be our new patrons. Welcome, new conspirators, James, Christopher, Thelonia, Alana, Skylar, Emily, Hannah, Anna, and Melanie. They join the ranks of our incredible supporting producer-level patrons, Philip, Julie, Eeyore, Kathy, Vinny, Danica, Marissa, Sammy, Josie, Neil, Jessica, Phil Fresh, and Deborah. You are all the trees of fruit jewels. In our hearts. That's true. That'll make sense later, obviously. Uh, And we think... Hopefully. (laughs) Hopefully. And we think our legend level patrons can cross the river of death at any time. They are Ayla, Jess, Sarah, Sandra, Audra, Mercedes, Jack Marie, and Lee Ann. Julia, what did you and Amanda drink while recording this episode? Excellent question, Eric. Thank you. Uh, I made a drink uh, for this episode, which is a twist on a corpse reviver, which is a cocktail that uses gin and absinthe uh, and is pretty perfect for this story since we're talking about death a lot. Oh my gosh, yeah, that sounds perfect for this. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, And if you are one of our recipe card level patrons, you will get a recipe for this drink so you can make it while you listen. I am excited to check that out. Uh, I'm excited to hear if you have a recommendation this week, Eric. My recommendation is the book series, His Dark Materials, which I am currently on the third book, The Amber Spyglass, which in this episode, Amanda talks a bit about, and I was very, very worried that it was going to contain spoilers, but had to keep listening because I had to edit it. I was like, oh no, oh no. And it, it, it's very vague stuff. So there's no true uh, true spoilers in this, but uh, it's my girlfriend's favorite book series growing up. And she's reading them along with me. We're both uh, on the third book and it's very, very good. And they are making a TV show uh, on one of the premium cable channels that I think is coming out later this year. So now is a perfect time to to pick up the books, read them. They are aimed at children so they're very easy reads it they're very good uh i think lynn manuel miranda is supposed to be in the tv show yes lynn is in the tv show he's playing lee scoresby the texan aeronaut i'm so ready for that which is is gonna be a performance i'm very excited to see it i'm sure it's gonna be fantastic we're also sponsored this week by calm uh, if you go to com.com slash spirits, you can get 25% off a premium subscription. We'll tell you a little bit more about that while we get our refill. And we're also sponsored by Stitch Fix. Stitchfix.com slash spirits. You get 25% off when you keep your whole box. And thank you so much for everyone who came out to our live show in Portland at the Listen Up Festival. It was fantastic. If you weren't able to make it, next week's episode might interest you just a little bit. 
Very exciting. It was a blast. Portland was phenomenal. Thank you to the entire city of Portland and to the Listen Up Festival for having us. They treated us so, so well. So well. And uh, yeah, it was just a blast to be there and part of the festival. Yes, it was fantastic. I want to visit Portland immediately now. Like, I want to go back next weekend. And so I think that's it. So without further ado, let's get started with episode 117, The Epic of Gilgamesh, part two. Hey, what's up? We're back with our boy Gilgamesh and his kind of boyfriend slash bestie slash companion in Kendu. What's up, nerds? It's Gilgamesh. What's up, nerds? It's Gilgamesh. That's my (laughs) best Mike Shubes impression. Listen to Horse. It's such a good podcast. So actually, this time around, I managed to find us a new translation. Ooh. At the end of the last one, I requested finding a woman or femme-aligned translator, and I did. Her name is Maureen Gallery Kovacs. Cool. So you can Google if you want to check out a little bit more about her. Here we go. Uh, so last time we left off, uh, Inanna had gotten super pissed about Gilgamesh turning down her advances. So she convinced her father, Anu, to loan her the Bowl of Heaven to wreak havoc on the city of Uruk, which Gilgamesh is the king of. Gilgamesh and Enkidu team up. They kill the Bull of Heaven, and Enkidu basically tells Inanna to fuck off by throwing the bull's hindquarters, aka the butt, at her. Through the butt. Some hot flaming butt. Uh, the whole city celebrates about not getting completely destroyed with a huge feast and whatnot, but Enkidu is left with a dream that night about his future. And we start, so we start with the seventh tablet describing Enkidu's dream. All right, lay it on me. I bet it's going to be not good. Well, listen, if you are ever in a myth and you have a dream about like how you're going to die or something, maybe just like take a few days, stay indoors, play it safe. I don't know. It's just a suggestion. Yeah, I definitely would do that. The seventh tablet basically explains what Enkidu saw in his dream. In the dream, the gods had decided that either Gilgamesh or Enkidu was going to have to die as punishment for killing the forest guardian Humbaba. I mean, fair enough. Which like I also said, which obviously the gods are pissed about. These were demigods and servants to the gods. Which, like, if they're demigods, they're probably the offspring of some of these gods themselves. It's worse than if it was a human. Yeah, it's real bad. And, like, I really don't blame them for wanting revenge at all. So the gods debate as to who is going to be the one that gets killed, and Inkedu is marked by the gods for death as they decide whoever cut down the tallest tree in the cedar forest, if you remember that is the land of the gods, the cedar forest, whoever cut down the tallest tree in the cedar forest would have to die. It ends up being Inkedu. Side note, Shamash, who we talked about, uh, sun god. Shamash is out there trying to defend Enkidu and change their minds, probably because he's the one who's like was most invested in civilizing Enkidu. Right. He's the one who sent Shamat to him. And uh, because Enkidu has given him like all these honorable sacrifices, he actually also goes so far as to claim that the two men actually killed the Bull of Heaven and Humbaba on his orders, which is not true. Oh, wow. He's just like straight up lying to the other gods. That's like a big, a big leap to take on their behalf. Enkidu, still in the dream, overhearing all of this, he curses the door that he made for Enlil's temple in the last tablet. It's basically like the gate to his temple. Right. So it's like, a kind of a big thing. Uh, it's also, he made it with the tallest tree that he cut down, which marked him for death. Yep, yep, nope, looks like a target, yep. Tr- tried to help, and then Enlil just kind of turns on you. It's not good. While he is on this cursing kick, he also curses Shamat for removing him from the wild and the trapper that found him in the forest in the first place for alerting the gods to his existence. Shamat shows up in the dream and basically tells him to calm the fuck down and be grateful. Shamat, for instance, is how Shamash was able to clothe and feed Enkendu. The trapper introduced the gods to Enkendu. He basically accuses Enkendu of being a child 
And like, you know, when like a parent makes a really good point and you want to be mad at them, but you're like, damn, that is a good point. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's basically what's happening here. How would you shut down that argument when you were a kid? I think I would just go like, I I have to study and like close my door. Yeah, I was very much like a go quiet and then just like huff child. Yeah, yeah. makes sense. So Shamash also is kind of the bearer of bad news and is like, yeah, okay, so you're going to die. And the gods have decreed it. But like good news. Gilgamesh is going to bestow all of these great honors at your funeral. I mean, that doesn't help. No, not right now. But also, like, Gilgamesh, according to Shamash, is going to, like, build a statue in Enkedu's honor, is going to have all the people in Uruk worship it. And because, like, we know from the Inanna story that mourning and grief are super important to the Sumerians, Shamash is, like, assuring Enkedu that Gilgamesh is going to, like, really honor him. He says that Gilgamesh is going to wander the wild consumed with his grief. So basically, like, giving up his role as king, making sure that Enkedu gets a proper send-off to the underworld. Wow. I mean, in a sort of sad way, it accomplishes the purpose that Enkedu was made for. He's humbling Gilgamesh. Yeah. Which kind of sucks that he has to die in order to do that, but it is achieving the goal that the people wanted. Mm-hmm. Enkedu is actually really surprised by all of this information. He, like, kind of takes back everything he said. He starts regretting all the cursing and the tantrum that he threw. And so he actually takes it, like, he doesn't take away the curses on the other two things, but he curse, it takes away the curse on Shamat and actually blesses her instead, oh. which is real nice. Yeah. She deserves it. Yeah. She did a lot for him. She is. The dream shifts, and then in a new dream, things get a lot worse. Oh, no. Um, He is attacked by a lion-headed eagle, which overpowers him. In the dream, Enkedu tries to call out to Gilgamesh for help, but Gilgamesh is too afraid to help him. Uh, The lion-headed eagle then transforms Enkedu into a dove, and Enkedu finds himself captive in Kerr, which is the Sumerian underworld. Um, One, a conspirator recently claimed the Twitter handle Eagle Husband. And I just want to suggest maybe consider lion-headed eagle husband at your Twitter handle. That sounds pretty good to me. If you if you need a good new variation, I, I agree. It's it's very good. The Sumerian underworld is, in a word, very interesting. It is described as a house of dust and there is no light. Ooh. The dead sit in the darkness and there is no food or water, but they instead eat clay and drink dirt. Oh, man. Yikes. Everyone is dressed in bird feathers because in the afterlife, all people are brought equal by death. Great rulers of the earth are servants to gods. Even in the West, we call death the great equalizer. You know what I mean? Like, And that's very much true of the Mesopotamian, Sumerian, Babylonian afterlife that we're describing here. It also reminds me of the third book in the Golden Compass trilogy, which takes place largely in an afterlife type scenario. And it is very gray, very dusty, very, you know, filled with ashes. So I I really like that imagery. It's terrifying. I'm a little bit quiet because I'm just like, oh, no, wow, that's a scary dream. You know, I know that's one of your like favorite childhood book series. Yeah. I never read them as a kid. That's okay. They're great. Yeah. You're remind me of Lyra so much. Aww. I've seen the movie to, enough to know that, like, that's a real nice thing you just said no, about she's, me. She is wonderful, and she reminds me of you a ton. Also, we have a friend whose baby is named Lyra, which I think is amazing. Um, <gasps> oh, but my God. Very good. Yes, I highly recommend it. They're a good vacation reading if you need something. So it is in this place, this afterlife, that Enkidu finds himself until he finally wakes up from these dreams. How long does he spend down there? 
or it's like a normal nightmare dream and it just takes a long time as he's experiencing it. it, it the, the latter. Oh, okay. The next day, he tells Gilgamesh about these dreams that he had and he begs his friend to like make sure like you have to remember me. You have to like remember all the things we've gone through together, all the time that we've spent. And it's like super, su- he, like the, the tablet like says it multiple times like you have to remember me you have to remember me like memory is like such an important thing here and so Gilgamesh is like genuinely scared by Enkedu's dream what makes matters worse is that after Enkedu finishes telling Gilgamesh about these dreams he becomes extremely sick no and he lasts 12 days only getting worse and worse as he lays there and there's no methods to revive him oh man on the twelfth day, Nkedu cries out to Gilgamesh, accusing the king of abandoning him in his time of need. And he laments that he did not die a heroic death in battle, but rather on a sickbed. And then finally he passes. Wow, that's worse than he deserved. Gilgamesh clings to his friend's body, promising to remember him, refusing to believe that Nkedu is actually dead or leave his body. And like the line is very specific until a maggot drops out of the nose of Nkendu's corpse. Oh boy. Which is like bleak as hell. Yeah. And I mean, so poetic. I can't imagine the like gorgeousness of this prose. Yeah. That's probably like one of the most infamous lines besides the like beginning and closing of the uh, of the tablets is like this line about the maggot dropping out of his nose which is like it's it's a gross image but it is like reminding us of the like physical mortality of human beings which is basically what the rest of this story is about wow and yeah like you know grief is a a strong force and i like that image in particular because you know obviously it's saying like it it gets so unpleasant and yet your force of your bond your love your devotion overcomes like the kind of normal boundary so you know like you said a little bit gross but super powerful we tend to joke about how spirits is just like hey let's get drunk and talk about death but this is like literally what's gonna happen in this <laughs> let's episode. do it so we start off on tablet eight with gilgamesh lamenting and mourning over the body of enkedu he spends like a decent chunk at the beginning of this talking about listing off calling upon plants animals cities places on earth and people in general to mourn for enkedu the tablet spends a lot of time as well talking about Gilgamesh's grief. He at times like directs his comments both to the men of Uruk who have gathered to watch him mourn and to Enkedu's body directly. At one point, Gilgamesh touches Enkedu's chest but feels that Enkedu's heart is no longer beating. Like it's like a very, very touching moment. So uh, he ends up covering his friend's body with a shroud and stands guard over it for the rest of the night. And in the morning, he tears his clothes, discards his jewelry and cuts his hair as a sign of mourning. Wow. Like Shamash said, Gilgamesh commissions a statue of Enkedu for his funeral and showers the grave with gifts from the city's treasury so that Enkedu will have a favorable reception into the afterlife. It's interesting. Like, did the dream create the reality or, you know, vice versa? Oh yeah, th- that's a real philosophical question. I-, I feel I feel like in this situation, it's very much the gods who are like indicating to him what was going to go down, and they're just like, "Hey, fair warning." So Gilgamesh even goes so far as to throw a great banquet in Kedu's honor and offers treasures up to the gods. At this point, uh, there is actually damage in the tablet, which is. No. We're going to talk. There's like a lot of that actually in the back half of this. So there is a break in the text. Uh, scholars believe that the missing section probably outlined exactly what happened at Akendu's funeral. Some of the text surrounding the missing section suggests that the Euphrates was actually dammed, meaning that Gilgamesh perhaps had Enkedu buried in the riverbed. Wow. 
yeah, like literally changing the course of the river in order to honor his friend to give him a proper burial. That's so powerful, man. And talk about like a, you know, a sign of remembrance, being able to look at the like mighty river that powers your whole civilization. And that's where your friend has been interred. When the tablet picks up again, uh, Gilgamesh is speaking to Enkedu, though obviously Enkedu is still dead. He tells his friend about the grand statue that he has made for him and that his people would worship him and the statue. Gilgamesh then makes an offering to the god Shamash, but for what reason and for like what end is kind of lost because again, the section after that is damaged as well. Given the context of the next tablet, it seems as though Gilgamesh chooses to start his journey off because Shamash suggested it. He is going to wander the wilderness as part of his mourning for Enkedu. This is a time where the like repetition of uh, storytelling or poetics would be very helpful. Like, okay, that stance is damaged, but I'm pretty sure we're, you know, repeating a refrain that happened earlier. Yeah, it's like, oh, well, he's off in the wilderness. We're like, how, when, why? <laughs> that's that's like the experience of reading Walt Whitman, where you're like, you have leaves of grass, or you have like a collected edition of the poetry, and you kind of just like flip from page to page. And it's like, is this one long list of like the noble professions of man? Is it a different poem than this previous long list of the noble professions of man? It's, it's very funny. It's a little early, but I think that we're probably going to need a refill before we start wandering the wilderness with Gilgamesh. Oh, hell yeah. Let's do it. So, Eric, hi. You're welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back to me. (laughs) Uh, We just got back from our trip uh, to Portland for the Listen Up Festival. Amanda is still traveling while we record this. And I always like I am not very good at sleeping in places that aren't my bed. I never get a good night's sleep when I'm out of my own bed. I'm I'm sure you can relate to that. I can. Yes. It's always nice to be at home. Yeah. And I get I get stressed. I get anxious. I like lay in bed and just like cannot get to sleep. Um, But I was really lucky because this time around for this trip, I used Calm. Uh, And Calm is the number one app for sleep, meditation, and relaxation. It gives you the tools you need for a happier, healthier, and more mindful life. And I was rocking the calm sleep stories the entire trip that we were in Portland. It was so easy. So they have these like guided meditations that help with issues like anxiety, stress, focus, and relationships. And then they also have the daily calm, which you can start your morning off with a little like mindful meditation, which is a great way to start your morning off, especially when you are super jet lagged in a city you don't know. It's a very, very good idea. And like I said, their sleep stories are wonderful. They're basically bedtime stories for grownups, like just enough calm storytelling to let your mind wander as you fall asleep. It is absolutely lovely. So for a limited time, Spirits listeners can get 25% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com slash spirits. This includes unlimited access to all of Calm's amazing content. So you can get started today by going to calm.com slash spirits. Calm.com slash spirits. Eric said it better because he doesn't have my accent. C-A-L-M dot com slash spirits. Thanks, Calm. Julia, I would like to tell you about some fashion. (gasps) Tell me about fashion. As I said, we were in Portland doing live shows. So before I went, what did I pack in my bag? But multiple shirts that I got from Stitch Fix. God, I love Stitch Fix. Stitch Fix is an online personal styling service that finds and delivers you clothes, shoes, and accessories that fit your body, budget, and lifestyle. And let me tell you, On my second time around with Stitch Fix, I said, I want to be bold and brave. (gasps) Send me some shirts with florals because I can never find them in stores. And they sent me this shirt that I wore to the Spirits Live show. It's a blue short sleeve button up that just has like these very like earth tone 
flowers on it and it looks great with pretty much any pair of pants it's hands down my favorite shirt i've ever owned it was a very it. good shirt it was very good so you can go to stitchfix.com spirits and tell them your sizes what you want and they will hook you up with a personal stylist who will handpick five items to you and it gets sent straight to your home and clearly they listen to what you like because you got that dope floral shirt and you rocked it. If there's something you don't love in your box, you can ship those items back to them and exchanges and returns are always free. There's no subscription either, so you can just request a box whenever you're uh, needing some new clothes, which is perfect. It's about to become spring, so maybe you want to freshen up that wardrobe mm -hmm. now that winter's kind of ending. And get some get some new clothes. So you can get started now at stitchfix.com slash spirits where you get 25% off when you keep all five items in your box. And trust me, it will surprise you how often you love all five items in your box. Yes, it is phenomenal. And if you go to stitchfix.com slash spirits, you'll get 25% off when you keep all five items in your box as well. Yep. So that is stitchfix.com slash spirits. You can get started today. Stitchfix.com slash spirits. Thanks, Stitchfix. And now let's get back to the show. So by the beginning of Tablet 9, Gilgamesh is out there doing his wandering. He's all alone. He's wearing animal skins. Specifically, they mentioned that he's wearing a lion skin, still lamenting the death of Enkedu. Uh, but apparently enough time has passed that his mourning has a slightly different tone to it. Okay. Rather than being upset with Enkedu being dead, really, he's beginning to become worried that like, oh shit, if Enkedu died, that means I might die someday. Hmm. So Gilgamesh, for the first time, is reckoning with his own mortality. Oh, shit. Enkedu's death has made the reality of that, like, so much more obvious to him than it ever has been before, which, like, really, you can't blame him. He's two-thirds god. He's probably never had yeah. to think about this before. Yeah, and, like, I don't know why I'm surprised that this, you know, epic work of human literature deals with epic themes and human lives, but, you know talk about it like this is really what it is huh wild right man oh man oh boy okay i'll just I'll, i'm gonna marinate on all my reactions because i really want to know what happens we're gonna talk about death later it's all good so gilgamesh is now suddenly scared of a thing that he never realized he might have to face himself death so he decides to seek out a man that he's heard stories about utnapishtim or the far away which like utnapishtim translates directly to the far away Ooh, boy. and he decides he's going to seek him out so that he can learn the secret to eternal life i would just like to point out that i got a notification and it's schneider sending me video of arnie walking <gasps> i love him so much <laughs> i picked up my phone to make a note about the death that i want to talk about and uh my prophecy came true of eric sending cool. me a snap <laughs> why would utnapishtim know about the secret to eternal life hmm right maybe because he's a solitary person living in the woods and when you do that apparently you gain all the knowledge in the world well no incorrect damn he and his wife were one of the few survivors of the great flood yes that great flood the one you're thinking of the one Ooh. we've done episodes on before and as such they were the only humans to be granted immortality by the gods oh damn so with new purpose gilgamesh sets out on his task to find this man the first night though gilgamesh is plagued by nightmares of course he is the tablet doesn't go into much detail as to what happens in these nightmares but gilgamesh wakes up undeterred which is probably a bad idea we know dreams are super important in sumerian mythology yeah. and this story in particular yeah. so maybe don't ignore the, the like very <laughs> bad nightmares you have Maybe they're there for a reason, bud. Maybe you just lived out your own prophecy. You're right now living out the dream that was given to you. 
Oh, boy. So Gilgamesh travels very far east to the twin mountain peaks of Mashu. So Mashu is so far east that it's where the sun rises every day, according to the Babylonians and the Sumerians. He arrives at the mountain and he comes across a tunnel that is guarded by two scorpion beings. You know, part scorpion, part human. Pretty straightforward. No, no. What are the configurations of the parts? (laughs) They didn't specify. (laughs) Dodged a bullet. Okay. I imagine, though, it's like Scorpia from uh, from She-Ra. I don't know that series yet because you haven't sat me down to watch it. I apologize. Scorpia looks like you. Oh, yes. The other the, the person we've talked about. Okay. Yes. Yeah, yeah. With the, with the like short hair. Yeah, yeah, with, yeah. With like a gray fade and like- Oh, a, no. She's fucking built. I love her. Yeah. She's great. She's she's a tough girl. I love her. Okay. Um, so they are rightfully scared of Gilgamesh. The scorpions, very scared of Gilgamesh. Aw. How, what what size are they? Human size? They're human size. Okay. Yeah. All right. Gilgamesh is scared of them. They're scared of Gilgamesh. It's not every day that you run into a scorpion being, but it's also not every day that like two thirds of a god comes to like hang out with you. Oh, yeah. Gilgamesh knows his friend is dead. He needs to confront death and gain eternal life. So he powers on, marches up to these creatures. Uh, the one scorpion being thinks that Gilgamesh for a second is like a full god and becomes frightened. But his wife, the other scorpion guard, which is true, the translation uses feminine pronouns for the uh, for the other Very good. scorpion guard, calms her husband down by saying that clearly Gilgamesh is not all god, only two thirds. <laughs> Gilgamesh speaks to them, informing them that he is here to speak to Utnapishtim. We also find out at this point in the tablet that Utnapishtim is Gilgamesh's ancestor. And Gilgamesh announces that he needs to speak to him in order to learn the mysteries of life and death. Naturally. The scorpion beings tell him that no mortal man is allowed to visit Utnapishtim. But Gilgamesh is persistent and also scary, as we established. Also two-thirds deity. (laughs) Exactly. And the scorpions yield. The... One male guard tells Gilgamesh that in order to reach Utnapushtim, he must travel through the tunnel that they're guarding. Uh, What the scorpion fails to tell Gilgamesh, uh, which he realizes later, is that he is suddenly in a race against time. Oh. Uh, The trip up the mountain that he needs to take uh, is along the same path that the sun will take when it rises in the morning. Oh, oh no. And so if he... And so if he doesn't cover the entire journey before the sun rises, the sun will burn him to a crisp. Yep. Saw that one coming. So as soon as he realizes it, Gilgamesh books it up the mountain. And of course, because it's much more dramatic when you do it this way, he manages to make it to safety at the very last minute as the sun is cresting over the edge. Like Dwayne the Rock Johnson hanging off the ledge of a skyscraper with one pinky finger. He makes it just in time. In the movie Skyscraper. Gotcha. I almost forgot the name of that. And I was like, what's the most obvious name? Skyscraper. That's it. (laughs) You got it. Listen, the marketing worked. You know, say what you will. But you remember the title of the movie. Gilgamesh arrives at the top of the mountain and he discovers the Garden of the Gods, which isn't just a garden, uh, but a garden where every plant, rather than producing fruit and leaves, is laden with heavy jewels. I really thought you were going to say babies and I got really nervous. No, only good things. No babies. Okay, okay. I mean, babies are babies are good, whatever. But I was picturing like a mandrake situation with like a like a dirt caked like Mm-mm-mm. mad head. Okay, we're good. We're good. Whew, Jules, you were just picturing a, a world where babies are delivered by storks, but they're also pulled out of the ground and then placed in their little baskets before the storks take them. Like like a little turnip. 
Yes. Very cute. I'm into it. But instead, we got jewels, which is also a good gift to get from a bird. Birds, bring me more jewels. Listen, I'm just saying, you land on my air conditioner and poop all the time. So just like leave me a jewel every now and again. We just need to befriend some crows. That's all I'm saying. Truly, every time I look at a crow, I'm like, you know what's up. You know what's up. I should, I should, I should give you like things so you'll bring me things. You make a weird noise when you're startled. Same. You like to lurk. You make people nervous. Same. And you just like to collect pretty things and hang out in spots where you can see a lot of stuff. Like, what is there not to love? If there's multiple in a group, then you can, like, tell the future. Any conspirators with bird pets, please tweet us photos ASAP. Please, if you've befriended some ravens or some crows, let us know. Oh, yeah. If you have some bird pals, even those who just, like, hang out by your car or your backyard sometime, I want to see them. I have my uh, my family of blue jays that live in my backyard. Yeah, you do. they're my friends. I love them. Okay, uh, in the Garden of the Gods. Yes. Back on track. No babies, lots of jewels. <laughs> Gilgamesh comes across a tavern and uh, meets an alewife named Sidori. Alewife of the gods? Sidori is not super excited about the appearance of Gilgamesh. Uh, she immediately thinks that he's a murderer or a thief because of his appearance. I mean, sure. Uh, I mean, all of his mourning and travel has made him look like pretty disheveled. So naturally. Also see lion skin. It's also only in a lion skin. He's just not looking great. No. So she bolts the tavern door against him, and this pisses Gilgamesh off. So he starts yelling and threatening her, dropping the fact that he's killed Humbaba and the Bull of Heaven. Uh, meanwhile, Sidori is like, well, this is bullshit. Look at you. I've thrown a butt. Let me in. To be fair, Enkidu threw the butt. I've Gilgamesh seen a butt thrown. Let me in. I've seen a butt thrown at a goddess. I have many tales to tell. I don't know why it's never occurred to me that there would be taverns in heaven, but I'm super into that now. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Uh, my my heaven has taverns. Most Can definitely. Confirm. Most definitely. He looks like a mess, not like a hero that's out slaying monsters and demigods. But Gilgamesh, trying to win her over, tells her the whole story. Enkedu's death, how he mourned, refused to allow Enkedu's body to be buried because he would not believe that he was dead. So he finishes the story almost pitifully, asking Sidori if... One day he too would have to die. Sidori answers him, though the answer depends very much on the translation that you're reading. Right. Uh, But in the one that we're referencing today, uh, basically she tells Gilgamesh not to worry about death so much. Because, like, humans will never achieve immortality. The gods simply won't let them. Which reminds me very much of our Maya creation story episode. Oh, yeah. So instead, Sidari tells him that they have to make the most out of the time they have on Earth. Make every day a party, she tells Gilgamesh. Be good to your wife and children. That's what life is about. Not wondering about what happens after or when it's going to end. Wow. That sounds like a much better version of Polonius's advice to his son. I like that. That was very good. Like, who cares about lending money to friends? Clearly Shakespeare did. I don't. But that is some advice that really, that really matters. And that's that's profound. Wow. It's pretty sound logic, honestly. You're like, yeah, don't worry about that so much. We talked about this with me using my vinegars and my nice wines. Yes, we did. (laughs) We totally did. Only Sumerians got it better and more poetic than me thousands of years ago. They did. But also Gilgamesh is not having any of this. Oh, (laughs) yeah. No, he wants answers now. Yeah, he's like, I demand you tell me where I can find Utapishtim. Uh, and Sidori's like, you know what? Fine, get out of here. Uh, We've been talking you for see four him, hours. You've told me my the, your story. It took four hours. Please, sir, leave my bar. You've bought nothing. So she says that if she wants to find the faraway, uh, he has to cross the waters of death. And that if he wants to do that, he should talk to Urshanabi, the ferryman. He should take two coins because he needs one for the way out. So the ferryman Urshanabi has these stone charms that surrounded his boat. 
Uh, and Gilgamesh gets to the boat using the directions that he got from Sidori. And when he gets to the boat, uh, the ferryman's not there. Gilgamesh being Gilgamesh is like, gets thrown into a rage and destroys all of these stone charms. No. What do you mean by charms? Just like like stones imbued with magic? Yeah. So the like the translation is really not specific. It literally refers them to them as like stone things. Okay. And there's different like thoughts on what it could be. They thought they could be like uh, lodestones, which are like help give direction in like this time period. They could just be like charms where they're just like. Yeah. Yeah. Just like supposed to keep you safe as you cross the river or okay. something like that. Makes sense. Or it's just like. He just had a bunch of cool stones that he really liked. I don't know. Yeah, made made his little area look good. Ursanabi comes back after hearing the commotion because he was out gathering mint in the nearby forest. Um, there is a little bit of damage again to the text here. Uh, but basically what we can deduce is that the conversation was basically like, uh, what the fuck, dude? Why'd you, why'd you kill my stones? I, I What's bet. going on? Gilgamesh recounts his tale to the ferryman. Again, like this, it's it's the repetition of the poetry again where yeah. he keeps telling the same story over and over again. And I like it because people in the audience are like, okay, yep, nope, I get it, okay. Uh-huh. So he asks the ferryman to transport him across the waters of death. I imagine in this moment that uh, Urshanabi is pretty deadpan when he informs Gilgamesh that he would love to take him across the waters, but Gilgamesh destroyed his stone charms that would keep them safe. <laughs> oh, there like, it is. Well, you destroyed the magic that helps me get across the water, and now we're both fucked. Mm-hmm. But if that was the end of the story, this this wouldn't be anything. So Urshanabi suggests a backup plan. He sends Gilgamesh into the woods, telling him to cut 300 punting poles, which are like those poles that ferrymen use to drag the boats across the river using mm-hmm. the bottom as leverage. Uh, Gilgamesh does that because he's Gilgamesh and he's just like, yeah, all right, let's do it. Hard labor. I got you. Don't worry about it. I'm wearing a lion skin. I can do anything. They get on the boat after he has cut all of these, uh, these punting poles. Urshanabi tells him that once he is done using a punting pole to push off the bottom, like, and using it to the full extent that he possibly can, he needed to toss it away because if he got the waters of death on him, he would, you know, die. (laughs) Oh boy. That makes a lot of sense. And it's very cool. But the problem is, Amanda, they didn't make it more than halfway before they realized they didn't have enough punting poles. No, what are they going to do? So Gilgamesh is like, ah, nah, fuck this. So he takes off his lion cloak and he holds it up as a sail. Uh-huh. And they they start like just cruising across the water. That seems much easier. It does. At this point, Utnapishtim is on the other shore, confused as to why Ushanabi is heading his way and also why someone besides the ferryman is the one sailing the boat. I would be too. The two arrive on Utnapishtim's shores and we get another recounting of the whole situation with Gilgamesh and Kedu. Same story over and over mm-hmm. again. Utnapishtim gives a long speech to Gilgamesh, which of course is not well preserved, so we're missing big chunks of it. Uh, but basically he tells Gilgamesh, Yo, dude, you got to count your blessings. You were born a rich and powerful king. You should be grateful for the lot that you have in life. And also that it's the will of the gods for humans to die. And like, it's not that it's an uncertainty as to if a person will die. It's the uncertainty as to when the person will die. Right. Like, we're all in this together, you know, except for the gods, in that (laughs) it's going to happen to everybody. Also, except for Utnapishtim, because he is immortal. So by Tablet 11, He was like, there was a great flood. Don't worry about it. I deserve this. Let me have this one thing. I struggled so much when I was your age. I I walked through five cow fields to get to school uphill both ways. 
Up, up the Euphrates River both ways. <laughs> By Tablet 11, Gilgamesh is pissed. He demands to know Utnapishtim's story because he doesn't believe that he's immortal because he's just like a normal human being. Like that doesn't compute in his brain. Yeah. Uh, so to make a long story short, because like it is a long story, half of half of the 11th tablet is just Utnapishtim telling the story of the Great Flood. Wow. Um, Utnapishtim lived in a city when the gods decided to destroy the world with the flood, uh, though why is never really specified. Um, luckily for the humans, Ea, who is the trickster god, told people living in a house of reeds that they should tear down their house and build a boat. Utnapishtim didn't need to be told twice because he was the man living in that house of reeds. Uh, and he basically becomes Noah. Anyone who is familiar with the Great Flood story probably knows the story of Noah and the Ark. Utnapishtim is the Sumerian and Babylonian and Mesopotamian version of that. Or I guess Noah is the... Uh, Christian version of this figure. Yes, probably. Um, they are all cut from the same cloth, basically. Yeah, but in terms it's of my stories we grew up with, this would be our corollary. Yes, so uh, Utnapishtim builds a huge raft slash ship, puts his family and a bunch of animals on the raft, and the craftsman that helped him build the ship. Very nice Very of him. Thank smart. You. Especially because you need to like rebuild society once the oh, flood yeah. waters recede. Oh, yeah. yeah. You need like a midwife, a carpenter, a healer of some sort, cook. And a teacher. I feel like midwife and healer could fall under the same category. Yes, that's true. That's true. Or, yeah, this is a, this is an okay scenario for the, like, Canadian urban legend of the dentist pilot. This is, presu- <laughs> this is allowed. This is allowed. If there's a great flood that destroys the world, you are allowed to have multiple all-encompassing professions. I allow it. All right. Good, good, good. All right. Cool, cool, cool. <laughs> oh, the dentist pilot. I still not over it. Oh, I'm so okay. sorry that he died. But also, the fact of it is wild. Uh, so for six days and seven nights, the flood remained. It basically, it hits all the beats of the Noah story. He sends out a bird because there's no dry land in sight. The bird doesn't come back, which means the flood has ended because the bird found dry land. Yeah. Um, the first thing he does is sacrifice animals to the gods when he like hits dry land and they disembark the boat. And the gods are super pleased about this. The goddess Bellatilly is in particular super, super happy. Uh, And she tries to bar Enlil, who is the one who created the flood in the first place, the god of like storms and whatnot, um, from coming to the sacrifice. Uh, Enlil is pissed that people had survived and he blames Ea, which is true because Ea is the reason that these people survived Mm -hmm. in the first place. And Ea kind of confronts him and says, hey, the slaughter of the humans was unjust and you shouldn't have done it. And like Enlil is like, I'm not going to address that, but also come here, humans. And, no, like, no. <laughs> gets Utnapishtim and his wife to kneel down before him and says that they would no longer be human, but rather they would dwell far away from humankind and live forever. This is very much being right on a technicality. Like he wants to be able to say, I did kill all humans. What about those guys? They're not human anymore. What are you talking about? Yeah, fuck you. <laughs> They're all dead now. I respect the urge, though, to like start your situation on a clean slate. Like first thing you do, right? Like first day of uh, of the year, you you live really healthfully. You do all your resolutions. First day on a new shore in a new world, you you make a sacrifice. You appease the gods. Yeah, that's what you do. Utnapishtim basically tells Gilgamesh that he probably would never be honored by the gods in the way that he was, and so he's like, you know what? Though I'm gonna offer you a way to at least try. So what I need you to do is I need you to stay awake for six days and seven nights. And Gilgamesh is like, oh, yeah, that sounds easy. Let's do it. 
Oh, Gilgamesh. And then the minute that he sits down, he falls asleep. No. <laughs> he actually sleeps for six days and seven nights, the exact time that he was supposed to stay awake. Utnapishtim kind of like sees where this is going to go. So he tells his wife, he's like, babe, do me a favor. For every night that Gilgamesh is asleep, I need you to bake some bread. <laughs> okay. And she's like, okay, that's weird, but all right. Uh, and so she bakes a loaf of bread every night that Gilgamesh stays asleep. And so by the time he wakes up, there are seven loaves of bread next to him. <laughs> and you can tell how old they are because it's bread. You know how like bread ages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it, you don't have like stale bread just laying around your house. That's super so. smart though, because otherwise how would he know? Well, Unapishtim has lived a long, long life because he's immortal. So he has like some intelligence and some knowledge and some wisdom. I'm, I'm not like surprised that he had a smart idea. It's just like a very smart idea. Yeah, no, it's very good. I liked it. And he also like foresaw. He's like, I've known you for about half an hour at this point, Gilgamesh. I'm going to need to prove to you that you've been asleep for this long. Because the minute Gilgamesh wakes oh, up, yeah, he's yeah, like, yeah. I was not asleep for that long. He's like, literally look at the loaves of bread. <laughs> Gilgamesh wakes up. He's pissed at himself. He's pretty bummed that he's going to die still. Like nothing has been resolved. Yeah, nope, same. Utnapishtim is like kind of annoyed with Gilgamesh at this point. He's basically, uh, he dismisses the ferryman Urshanabi and he tells Gilgamesh like, okay, Urshanabi is going to take you away, get you cleaned up, and then you're going to leave my site and like go back to the human world. Urshanabi does this, gets Gilgamesh all done up in some nice clothes, and they're about to leave. But Utnapishtim's wife comes out and argues that Gilgamesh has worked hard to get here, and he was leaving with nothing, and that's kind of fucked up. So Utnapishtim resigns himself, and he tells Gilgamesh that even if he's still going to die, Gilgamesh can seek out a special plant that grows at the bottom of the ocean that will make him young again. Oh, not what he's going after, but not a bad second place prize. Yeah, and like Gilgamesh is just like kind of cool with this at this point. So he decides he's going to go for it immediately because it's Gilgamesh and he has no impulse control whatsoever. Why not? So he starts digging a hole until he reaches groundwater ties rocks to his feet, and then lets himself sink to the bottom of the water. There, he snatches up the plant, cuts the rocks off his feet, and lets the current just, like, kind of take him back out to sea, and then the tide brings him back to the shore. I'm like, that's very simple. What you just did there, very simple. Yeah, shockingly for Gilgamesh, he does something correctly <laughs> and efficiently. Well, give it a minute. <laughs> because, of course... He doesn't eat the plant right away. That would be too easy. No. Instead, he decides that he's going to head back to Uruk so that he can test it on an old man there and make sure Untnapishtim wasn't trying to, like, dupe him. I mean, what's the worst that's going to happen? He's going to die? That's the problem in the first place. Yeah, he doesn't want to die, Amanda. No, I know, but, like, just, just try it. Well, he, he decides... This is his course of action. If it does work on the old man, then he'll get to eat it himself. Urshanabi decides that he's going to go back with him now that he's been dismissed from his job of being the ferryman for the dead, which God, is just something you can do, I guess. everything, Gilgamesh. So the two of them head back to Urk. Uh, on the way, they stop at a spring to kind of rest and wash up. Gilgamesh decides, oh, I'm going to take a bath. But of course, he doesn't bring the plant with him when he decides to bathe. No. And a snake sneaks up and steals the plant. And the story makes a point of saying that the snake sheds its skin as it slithers away with the plant, probably showing the fact that like snakes are immortal, I guess, or basically that the plant works and the, yeah, the snake yeah. was able to like replenish its life. Well, that sucks for Gilgamesh. Yeah, uh, and Gilgamesh is rightfully heartbroken. He cries, he thinks this whole quest has been a waste and, like, you can't really blame him for that. Uh, all of this for nothing. Still, he and Urshanabi 
arrive back in Uruk, there's like a whole thing where the the beginning of the Epic of Gilgamesh kind of starts with like the poetry explaining how Uruk is this great city, like the peak of civilization and stuff like that. And Gilgamesh echoes those thoughts mm. and those ideas to uh, to Urshanabi as they approach the walls nice. of Uruk. And then he is welcomed back as a hero. But what happens next, Julia? So we go into Tablet 12 next, which is kind of, as I mentioned in the first episode, it's kind of like a weird version that retcons the story a little and is either like a prequel or a sequel or like just like a weird, I don't know. But we're not exactly sure where it fits in the chronological like aspect of the story. May I propose Tablet 12 as a speakeasy name? Yes, it's very good. Pretty good, right? That is excellent. I think it's pretty good. Is it is it early? Is it late? Who knows? Who cares? Here we are. We're in the back of a, a bookstore drinking gin. <laughs> yep. And looking at a portrait of Teddy Roosevelt, because why not? The story of Tablet 12 is called Gilgamesh Nkedu and the Netherworld or Underworld, depending on the translation. In this story, Nkedu is still alive, despite the fact that he died. It is described by some scholars as, quote, here's a very good quote, an awkward attempt to bring closure. Oh. Which is like, ouch, Colin J.K. Rowling out. Yeah, it's very bad. I mean, maybe some storytellers didn't want to end with that bittersweet thing. And so they just, you know, added on an addendum. Gilgamesh in this story complains to Enkedu, who is definitely still alive, I guess, that some of his belongings have fallen into the underworld, like physically like fallen in. He's like, my cup, it's gone. Uh, oops, all underworld. <laughs> Enkedu, who has like either is going to die or has died, depending uh-huh. on the chronological nature I mean, of the maybe story. Maybe they ran into each other in the underworld? I don't know. Maybe. But he offers to bring them back for his friend. Nope, never mind. And Gilgamesh is so grateful. He gives and can do this lesson on what he can and can't do in the underworld if he wants to return to the world of the living. In Kendu, being in Kendu, just does everything he's not supposed to. Oh, sure. Yes. He is stuck remaining in the underworld. Uh, Gilgamesh tries to appeal to the gods to return his friend, and Ea and Shamash are the ones who decide to help him out. Shamash cracks open the earth, and Enkidu's Ghost is allowed to rise from the underworld. Hmm. The tablet, and I I suppose the story, if this is how we want to end it, ends with Gilgamesh asking his friend's ghost about what he has seen in his time in the underworld. And this is where we get the establishment of what the underworld in the Epic of Gilgamesh looks like. Interesting. With the feathers and the darkness and the dirt and the clay. Wow. I mean, that's not a bad ending in terms of, you know, you can continue of a friendship with someone after you know like like you you can have that relationship persist even if someone dies that lives on with you but that doesn't sound like the scenario that we're talking about yeah it's it's very much like it feels like it was hastily written closure to a story where or like one of my favorite examples of a translation from stage to film is when they were making the um, Little Shop of Horrors movie. The original ending ends the same way that the play does, which is basically the killer plants from outer space take over the world. Mm-hmm. And the biggest argument that the test audiences had was this is it's too bleak. This is the, like it's so sad. They're they're just singing as the plants destroy the cities and the the whole world and take over. And they realize that that kind of ending works in a play format where the actors can come out after dying and can take a bow oh, and yeah. the audience gets closure. But in a film where you don't see those people at the end of the film like taking a bow and are still alive, it feels very bleak and very disheartening. Yeah. And this is kind of what this like what the tablet 12 kind of feels like to me is the like, oh, 
it's okay, though, because he's still kind of alive and they still have a friendship and all of that mourning was for nothing. Yeah, you're right. I think it would feel different if the mourning wasn't such a motivating force of like half of this epic. But that sounds so powerful. And, And I can imagine this text being really meaningful to people who are dealing with that challenge in their own lives. Yeah, for sure. And like, I I think one of the things I want to really discuss with the Epic of Gilgamesh is the fact that like, it's been like 4,000 years, give or take, it's been about 4,000 years since the Epic of Gilgamesh was written. And our priorities haven't changed that much. No, we're like so much of like, I'll preface this, I used to work at a spa and wellness company that was definitely a front for like some sort of money laundering, totally money laundering. All of the things that I used to see in the spa community were how to like stay young forever, how to live longer, how to like basically become immortal to like the point where there was some creepy shit going on. Like people would get like blood transfusions from like teenagers so that their like blood would be younger. It it was absolutely wild stuff. Yeah. Anytime I see that like adapted in a in a TV show, I think, "Uh uh-huh, checks out. But like the idea that we are always trying to outsmart death and like the the more logical, the more knowledgeable, the wiser people in the story are always the ones that accept death as part of life. You know, we've talked about it before, how unfortunately there are lessons that you just have to learn by doing it. Um, and you can hear so many times, like, live in the moment, focus on now, you know, accept that it'll all end someday, but you still have to appreciate it. And yet, you know, or like even to value the time you have with your loved ones now. But unfortunately or fortunately like it it really takes living through it for that kind of meaning to sink in and this feels like every attempt you know that humans have at storytelling is to try to save other people from the pain of learning that lesson themselves but i think that's the human condition yeah i you know i actually pulled an interesting quote from tablet 2 which i wish we had talked a little bit more when we had touched upon it but i think it really does talk about like gilgamesh's outlook on what death is in his world uh here's the quote we all die anyway so i might as well accomplish great risky deeds and make a name for myself that way my fame will live on after i'm dead even if i have a short life wow so it sounds like his priorities really shifted in that he he realized the kind of beauty of like deep relationships worth having in the life not just thinking yeah. about how your legacy is going to be carried on after you die Yeah, absolutely. And like, I think that's reflected in like what basically everyone tries to tell him in the second half of the story where it's like, dude, just like live your life, enjoy life what it is, like for what it is. It's it's just, you know, if you live every day like a party, you know, every day is going to feel like such joy. But if you obsess about like what death is going to come and what your legacy is going to be after, then you're not going to enjoy it and you're not going to live it. You know, I was just thinking about this. In, in a totally micro sense in terms of our preparation for PodCon, where mm-hmm. like there were a lot of logistics to think about. There were like seven people coming from different cities. We had an expo booth. We had two workshops, several panels, two live shows, three live shows, two offsite. Um, and so a lot of these logistics, I was just thinking about so much in the months before the event. But I feel like I kind of struck a good balance between trying to prepare and obsessing And Mm -hmm. definitely my personality is to obsess over things and to think about every eventuality and be 100% certain in whatever decision I'm making before I make it. But that's not practical. And also that sucks a lot of the time. It just sucks to have have that on myself and and to carry that around. So 
for PodCon, like I didn't think of every single detail. Like when we had to all leave the booth to go to a show that we were doing, we just wrote on some paper, like, hey, this is where we are. We'll see you guys later. And I could have thought of that in advance and made signs, you know, and like put it up and been really professional. But instead, I was just like, let's figure it out. There were lots of people around, lots of folks to help, you know, and and just you can figure some stuff out on the ground. So in the moment, like the, the lesson I took from that was saying, okay, like you can think about the important stuff. But at a certain point, you just have to trust yourself and the people around you to figure it out when you get there. And, you know, whatever might be imperfect on the day, like, is that really worth so many hours of stress beforehand? Um, So I don't know. It was just it it felt kind of it felt kind of profound. And I'm kind of seeing echoes of this, you know, in in you don't want to live your life only for yourself and only for today. But you also don't want to be so obsessed with what comes after death. Yeah, sure. And I, I I feel that very hard, what you just described. Um, when I'm when I'm in therapy and I'm talking about my anxiety, I tend to talk about how the way that my brain catastrophizes things. Um, I call it like worst case scenario brain. Oh yeah. And just like my brain will just not stop cycling through all of the things that could possibly go wrong, no matter how likely or unlikely those things are. Um, and I think that it's, it very much puts me in the same mindset that Gilgamesh is in. He's like, I. he's so obsessed with the inevitability of what, like, he's going to die. He understands that for the first time in his life when Enkidu dies. And so all of a sudden he is obsessed with the idea of, okay, well, when am I going to die? When am I going to die? What's going to happen? Wh- like, how how can I avoid this for as long as possible? And that's like basically what his journey becomes. And it's extremely unhealthy. And like the way that our brains catastrophize things and the way that they cycle through catastrophe is like, basically, I like I, I see that a lot in myself in this story. And the idea that I need to separate myself and enjoy and like just live in the moment rather than focusing on the terrible things that could potentially happen in the future, even though the likelihood is not that high at all. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So much. And I, I, you know, I heard all the advice you hear about falling in love. And then when I did it, I was like, oh, no, wait, this will make it worse when everything ends. And, you know, I, I had to like really feel that and like let it just live in my body until I was able to realize, okay, yes, like the more you care, the, you know, the harder the eventual, you know, parting of people from this earth is going to be. But that suffering is like proof of our care. And and the more, you know, worry or the more potential hurt, you know, hopefully that's outweighed by just enjoyment um, and uh, like love and acceptance and understanding uh, in in life. So I feel like I've I've totally like if, if there were a deity coming to me and being like, yo, you want this or should I take it away because you won't suffer someday? Like at one point in my life, I would have said, I want to minimize suffering. Um, and that would have been my choice every time. But now I, I feel a little bit more balanced and realize that, you know, joy really matters and joy is worth future heartache. Oof. Yeah, I think that's actually a good note for us to leave on uh, today. Uh, and I will tell our listeners to choose joy and also to stay creepy. Stay cool. Thank you so much to our sponsors, Calm. Calm is the number one app for meditation, mindfulness, and sleep. Get 25% off a premium subscription at calm.com spirits. And thank you to Stitch Fix. It is an online personal styling service that finds and delivers clothes, shoes, and accessories to fit your body, budget, and lifestyle. Get started at stitchfix.com spirits for 25% off when you keep your whole box. 
Spirits was created by Amanda McLaughlin, Julia Shafini, and Eric Schneider, with music by Kevin McLeod and visual design by Allison Wakeman. Keep up with all things creepy and cool by following us at Spirits Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Tumblr. We also have all of our episode transcripts, guest appearances, and merch on our website, as well as a form to send us your urban legends at spiritspodcast.com. Join our member community on Patreon, patreon.com slash spiritspodcast for all kinds of behind the scenes stuff. Just $1 gets you access to audio extras with so much more available too. Recipe cards, director's commentaries, exclusive merch, and real physical gifts. We are a founding member of Multitude, a collective of independent audio professionals. If you like spirits, you will love the other shows that live on our website at multitude.productions. And above all else, if you liked what you heard today, please share us with your friends. That is the very best way to help us keep on growing. Thank you so much for listening. Till next time.